on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week it's Valentine's Day season, and our panel of hunks will let you know what operatic love music you should be listening to to get into that romantic mood. But don't worry, we're not talking about Tristan and Isolde. Oliver told me not to. Our hunks are going to dig in a little deeper to curate the perfect soundtrack for however you plan to spend the night. Plus, in the two-minute drill, the union drama at the Met continues, and a different kind of drama unfolds at Opera Australia with Nicole Kidman? But first, Oliver, did you watch the Super Bowl? Now be honest. I actually watched the first half with much excitement. I thought it was a really fun game, and I saw where it was going, mm-hmm. and I gave up after the first <laughs> the first half. Uh, I think Patrick Mahomes is so my type of guy, and I didn't want to see him demoralized. And there's something about the, you know, about Tom Brady. That is so infuriating. I know I'm not, this is not an original thought at all, (laughs) but just to see something like that win so much at life, uh, I'm tired of the winning. So well, that, that's uh, I, why uh, that's why Ashley Hardgrave isn't here tonight. She's in the uh, the prescribed 14 day mourning period after Tom Brady <laughs> succeeds at anything. Uh, but she did leave some notes for us because uh, which was very helpful because I, full disclosure, did not watch the Super Bowl. And I don't think you did either. Did you, Matt? I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to watch Tom Brady. Even. I feel like Maybe it's sort of our, our, our job to like, you know, it's an American zeitgeist cultural, you know, community. It's something that everybody does, you know, in some way. So you have to be connected to it and at least understand what's happening, you know. But like, you can get recaps and you can listen to podcasts about what happened or watch the news, I guess. But you can read Ashley's notes, which she provided. So yeah. So Ashley us. says the one time. <laughs> I decide to take a vacation and they tell me the house has Wi-Fi. <laughs> I've passed along the Super Bowl highs and lows and I'll see you all next week, she says. She starts off with a high, Amanda Gorman's moving video segment honoring three COVID heroes. She actually notes that Amanda Gorman, and I definitely agree with this, is a voice of the future and a reminder of the value of supporting arts education. And whereas on the other hand, a low was Kansas City's defense there... And this is, these are her words, young and hungry, uh, but we're apparently no match for that old guy who cheated with the Patriots for years before moving to Tampa. You know, the one who married uh, a supermodel who thinks tomatoes are a cheat food. <laughs> who, who could that be? I don't know. <laughs> Another high, the say. national anthem, uh, not for not for Eric Church or Jasmine Sullivan, who can really sing, though, or the questionable orchestration of the final phrase, but for the stunning ASL interpretation by Warren Snipe. Don't bother watching the singers. Just watch Snipe crush it. You'll find it on the Facebook page of the National Association for the Deaf. Mm-hmm. Taking it back to the low lights. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis appearing maskless at the event. Why would you ever want to do anything to <laughs> oh cultivate responsible behavior if you're a governor? Oh, my God. I mean, on the other hand, Sarah Thomas did make history as the first female uh, woman to referee a Super Bowl, which is pretty exciting. So that was a high for Ashley, another low for Ashley. The rest of the referee squad who were in the well-lined <laughs> pocket of Tom Brady and the Bucks <laughs> offense. <laughs> Uh, 
another high was the performance of America the Beautiful, where who her her her, her yeah. performance her. of her. the America the yeah. Beautiful, where she sings, yeah. she shreds on guitar, and a gorgeous mix of heft and delicacy. Delightful. I can't believe I know something about popular culture that you don't know. Well, I was like, who does that stand for? Hillary Rodham. <laughs> <laughs> Not to get uh, political <laughs> again. <laughs> another another low from Ashley is uh, the grouchiness from folks about the weekend's halftime sh- uh, show. Uh, sure, he's not the typical standalone mega hit superstar we usually see, but nothing about this season has been typical to say the least. His bizarre aesthetic 80s light synth pop hits and the socially distant chorus with the good arrangements and the epic choreography were, Ashley thinks, an empty apropos shrug at this bizarre moment in history another high the odd feeling of ritual that the super bowl even happened altered yes but even a pandemic couldn't stop it whereas you were also reminded of this low thousands of maskless tampa fans flooding the streets after their win not a social distance in sight whole city is going to be one big red card for two weeks (laughs) coming up in two minute drill And to wrap it all up, congrats to Tampa Bay and their boringly handsome quarterback who proves that you can play a ball well into your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. Fine, whatever. (laughs) Go Bears. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It's Valentine's Day week, and here at OBS, we three Valentine's hunks have come in to, to give us, to give you... Some, uh, <laughs> I can't even say it, to give uh, to give you some Valentine's uh, love duet some recommendations, grooves. some grooves, yeah. and we decided to not just go with the obvious choices, your Rodolfo and Mimi's and your Tristan's and Isolda's and et cetera, et cetera, all deep down the line. Deep cuts only. We wanted to get a little bit more deep cuts only, deep cuts only, uh, if you know what I mean. And Oliver is going to start us off with a sensual selection. Well, knowing my audience, I'm doing one for the gays. <laughs> and um, I just want to say that, you know, the whole pants roll thing, uh, typically... Like pants off roll. Uh, is typically is a good way for um, the sapphic members of the audience to be titillated, such as, you know, the, the flirtation between the Contessa and Carabino, or even the idea of Octavian in bed with the Marshallin. Those are some great lesbian moments in opera. And they get to show off their shapely legs in those pants costumes. <laughs> <laughs> those pants I'm going to go the reverse with the pants roll, um, which to me is so homoerotic, and that uh, results in a relationship between the muse, who, when she dresses up as a mortal, takes the shape of a boy, who mm. is... Hoffman's sort of companion in the opera, The Tales of Hoffman. Ooh, that's a good and one. I've always thought of this opera as being super gay. And I think there is some evidence to back up the fact that E.T.A. Hoffman, who this was based on, was actually a closeted homosexual. Am I right about that, Matt? I, I, feel, I assume you know that fact. I'm not really up on the the okay. scholarship of Hoffman's sexuality, I, I've, but it's I've probably heard been it about, about basically every writer of that era. So it's probably <laughs> <Okay>. true. <laughs> so... Um, the opera opens up with the muse uh, who, you know, becomes Niklaus. And um, the opera doesn't have a very clear narrative. Uh, I mean, the, the timeline is a little bit odd. You have to, and especially if they, well, depending on what version they do. But essentially, we find Hoffman in 
the present moment in Act One and in Act Five, and then Acts Two, Three, and Four show Hoffman's trajectory uh, deeper and deeper into alcoholism and into self hatred until he finally hits rock bottom and decides to give up on women and focus mm-hmm. on his art. Subtext. Interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> his art that's played by a man, played yes. by a woman. Exactly. So Speak to Victoria. Um, there is the first aria in the first act of Hoffman, which is the Kleinsack song. And I, in my interpretation, Hoffman, um, he falls into this reverie moment and he's supposed to be thinking of Stella, the character who we finally meet and doesn't sing uh, in the conclusion of the opera. But I like to think of it as he's in this bar with all these guys. There's only men in this bar. And I love scenes in opera that are only men, by the way. And, uh, you know, he's singing this song. Just an opera, folks. (laughs) He's singing this song about this weird dwarf with, like, missing limbs or whatever. It's just a strange song about Kleinsack. But in the middle of it, he catches a glimpse of Niklaus. And he starts to go into a reverie because he desires Niklaus so much, but he cannot do anything about it. And so he starts to sing uh, essentially about how beautiful Niklaus is and how desirable Niklaus is. He's supposed to be talking about Stella, but I'm going to change it and say he's talking about Niklaus. And you can listen to <laughs> um, the, uh, we're going to create a playlist for you folks, actually a YouTube playlist. And so the links to each of our excerpts for today will be in the show notes. Or you can listen to the podcast, which I do recommend you do. Please subscribe to Opera Now Podcast or uh, Opera Now. (laughs) Did you just pitch your other podcast? Please subscribe. This is is what happens when George leaves. (laughs) Oliver thinks he can get away with anything. Okay, so I forget which one. You favorite us on Stitcher or like us in. Uh, Apple Podcasts, I forget how, but subscribe basically, and you will get these podcasts and you can hear uh, the clips we're, we're talking about. But there's this really beautiful reverie uh, in the middle of the Client's Act song, which I think is um, Hoffman's turgidness, for lack of a better word, for Niklaus. Turgidity? Turgidity, yeah. <laughs> His wood. <laughs> <laughs> so this first clip is from the Richard Tucker, Richard Tucker Gala in 1990, Jerry Hadley uh, with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Uh, I'm not sure who the conductor is for this because it's not credited, but um, you know Jerry Hadley had a lot of tone in the middle of his voice. It's sometimes a part of the tenor's voice that doesn't have a lot of options. Uh, he had plenty of sound to give in this aria that climaxes in the lower middle of the voice, which is very unusual for uh, a tenor climax. Is he is over the 
Then we move to um, the Olympia Act, uh, which to me shows that Hoffman doesn't like women at all. He can't even tell that Olympia is a woman. She's a, a doll. doll. <laughs> and she basically represents an ideal, you know, being a doll, like doesn't talk, you know, and doesn't have an opinion and is just perfectly beautiful uh, and sings, you know, perfect staccati. <laughs> it's an it's an unreal ideal, and we don't need to listen to any music from that. Another um, unrealistic expectation for women. From that act. We'll move on to the Antonia Act, and the theme that begins to emerge is that all the women that Hoffman is in love with actually don't love him back. Mm. Um, none of them are. I mean, they they say they love him, but they're not. They're, their main passion is something besides him. And Antonia's main passion is for music. And uh, that is really, you know, beguiling to Hoffman. And Niklaus here, who once again, you remember, is actually his muse in disguise as a boy, uh, warns him at the beginning of this act that, uh, you know, he should, you know, he should really focus on his art. If he thinks if he thinks that Antonia is, you know, somebody who he admires because she is so focused on her art. Why don't you do the same, you know? And she sings the violin aria, which is the, there are only a few moments in this opera that are just so passionate and lyrical where it's like, you really feel like this is direct, like right to the veins, like passion. It's the, <laughs> that moment in the Kleinsack aria. And it's this aria, which is almost like Niklaus's, you know, profession of love to Hoffmann. Even more so than when Antonia sings herself to death. Yeah. So um, once again, uh, you can look at our playlist uh, and or if you listen to the podcast, uh, you will be hearing uh, Kate Lindsay from a, 25, a 2015 production uh, from the Met. get into the fourth act uh, of the opera, which is the act that takes place in Venice. And at this point, Hoffmann's heart has been broken by Olympia and by Antonia because both of them died. <laughs> and <laughs> That'll now, do it. Well, one of them now, was a doll. So was she yeah. ever really alive? <laughs> so true. And now he is chasing after just sex. So at least in the Olympia act, he was chasing after like a physical ideal and in the second act he was chasing after a uh, sort of like an artistic ideal an intellectual ideal now he's just after sex and it's so strange that this 
act has the most famous duet music in the whole opera, even though there are lots of duets in the show. This duet, the um, Barcarolle, which we're not going to hear, is the duet that everybody remembers. And it is very sexy. And it is <laughs> Niklaus and Julietta singing this duet. So in my fantasy uh, version of this show, um, Hoffmann is in a three-way or a menage a trois uh, with these two characters. And it's because there's a woman involved. It's his one chance, it's permission to be with another man, you know, because we're, you know, I know it's a family show, folks, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, you see the Valentine's Day edition, and you know, it's going to get a little spicy. <laughs> Uh, but the absolutely most passionate moment in this whole opera, the moment that is just full of desire, full of testosterone, full of, you know, I'm about I'm about to finish right now, uh, <laughs> is this little short aria. It's not even two and a half minutes long. Oh, Dieu de Calivresse. And it may be my favorite Italian aria. That's not that's in Italian. <laughs> yeah, that's not an Italian opera. Um, once again, <laughs> check out our playlist, but we will hear in the podcast uh, Rolando Villazone from a live performance in 2011. Singing possibly the hardest two minutes of tenor music <laughs> ever written. <laughs> um, Constantinos Caridis is the conductor, and you'll see Diana Damrau on the frame if you look up the video online. This is... Rolando Villazon going balls to the walls. I mean, I really cannot believe that he is giving so much tone. I mean, he starts at 100 and he goes to like 150 by the time he's done with this. I I mean, this is clearly how you lose your voice <laughs> singing like this. But thank goodness there's a document of somebody just going for it all the way.
So uh, in the end, um, you know, Julieta wants material possessions and abandons Hoffman. And uh, he's left with Niklaus, um, who throughout the whole opera has been just a really good friend and compassionate and worried about him like a lover would, you know, like Chaston would Pete, you know. Um, <laughs> That's secre- Secretary Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Secretary Pete. Uh, and I love this love story, even though it's not happy, even though it's unrequited. There were probably moments where they spent time together physically. It's not a love that can be shown in public in this time. And uh, the impossibility of it forced our hero to become the great artist that he became. And that not that the story of the homosexuals? <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's it's a wonderful story. It's a very, very sad story, but it you know really tugs at the heartstrings. Um, but I'm afraid my selection is going to bring us back down to earth a little bit, because you know when you think about it, isn't Valentine's Day just a fake holiday? You know, it's like invented by Hallmark to sell greeting cards and make you feel bad for being single. So like like, like I get that opera is full of romantic moments and like beautiful love duets and 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 love scenes. But for all you cynics out there and all you singles out there, I've got one for you. This is a little opera by uh, Stefan Volpe called Zeus and Elida. And, and it's uh, not Tristan and Isolde wearing it's mustaches. Not. It's not. It's, it's very different in many ways because nothing says I hate corporate holidays like a 1928 Zeitopa. Um, the fusion of styles in this opera is so neat to me because it takes uh, sort of that cynical German cabaret style jazz um, and like fuses it at its core with 12 tone technique and uh, and the, uh, within the framework of this anti-capitalist critique of Weimar era Germany and that and that when you listen to that you just start looking down your nose at happy couples giving each other heart-shaped boxes of chocolates in no time. And that's, you know, really what we want here if Oliver says I'm not allowed to talk about Tristan and Isolde again, because <laughs> I've been burned too many times, Oliver. So I'm going to do this. The opera's pretty short, um, and it exists to satirize, you know, urban culture, especially in Germany. Uh, basically what happens is uh, the Greek god Zeus comes down from Olympus into then-modern-day Berlin, and he doesn't get it. Like he's this big romantic hero of the of the olden times, and here he is surrounded by advertisements, poor people, um, just people like uh, you know, just not being at his level. And uh, and but soon he sees a portrait of the most beautiful woman he's ever seen on an advertisement, and he's instantly smitten. Um, so who could have caught the eye of this this god? Some kind of supernatural beauty, some sort of nymph, some sort of. Uh, uh, demigod no actually she's the mascot for a soap company uh and this is a real soap company that actually existed the elita mascot was an actual thing in germany at the time this would be like if zeus came down to earth now and became infatuated with flow from progressive which is incidentally a take on this opera i would pay a lot of money to see um but uh and who could blame him flows flows a delight uh, but he's confused by the modern world. He confuses the word syphilis with sylphs. Um, he comes across as a bit of a bumbling old man because he doesn't have any of his powers and he's confused. And he comes across a sex worker who kind of looks like Alita, the Alita advertisement. And he declares her the love of his life. It's very passionate. And she's like, okay, what are you going to pay me? 
and uh, and ugh, it just. Mm. This is like the anti-Valentine's opera. I love it so much. Pretty soon, um, uh, she calls the police on him. He gets arrested. Um, and uh, on the charges of, and I quote, offensive dress, anachronistic impropriety, and false pretenses, and blasphemy against the former hereditary gods of Greece. And uh, she sings a lovely little duet with him, uh, which is a sort of a take on the blues genre, about how he probably wouldn't have been all that bad in bed after all, but she's got to get make money, and she's had this life that's led her here. And then everything on this little square gets banned. Like like Valentine's Day should be like sometimes you walk into Target and you just see like the line of Hallmark cards. You're like, I wish someone would make that illegal. Um, And uh, if you're listening to the podcast version, I'm going to play a little bit of the blues duet from the Ebony Band recording sung by Michael Krauss and Francisca Herzl, conducted by Werner Herbers here. Um, And if you're listening to the video version, you can find that on our playlist.
Now, I will say it's a little unfair to me be a little bit cynical on Valentine's Day because of this opera, because I do genuinely love it. And to me, it represents a love story in a more meta context, presenting the rare synthesis of the two main branches of German avant-garde, of the German avant-garde prior to World War II, that of the sort of the people who were under the tutelage of Ferruccio Busoni and the Schoenbergians who were doing their 12-tone technique. Um, and they come together to form this beautiful horrible baby called Zeus and Alita and I love it And you it so say much. you're not a romantic. I, oh. I really am at heart. <laughs> Matt, do you have something that's maybe a little bit more uplifting to bring our audience back? So I don't know about uplifting, although we'll get there. <laughs> um, but definitely talking about like outward romantic. It It's not operatic romance if you're not talking about at least some aspect of Puccini. And you know, mm. we got Oliver and his French, as always, you and German, as always, and I have to yeah. cape for the Italians because they are always See. overlooked. People think that all it takes is a good melody and some garlic bread and you've got an opera, but it's more complicated <laughs> than that. Um, I'll grant you, we've all heard Bohem a million times by now. The Met is still doing it. They're not doing opera, but they're still doing that one Bohem production <laughs> just every day with no one there. <laughs> It's just Peter Gelb on stage by himself singing to like an empty room. Yeah. A single tear slides down his face. The butterfly duet. It's epic. I love it. It's 35 (laughs) minutes long. Um, But let's go for something a little off the beaten path. Something a little Mm. bit with a little bit more fire. Um, Mm. So we're going to go to that gem that everyone knows and uh, loves and is very easy to sing. uh, Manolisco. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first version of Manolusco that was turned into an opera. It's not even the second version of Manolusco that was turned into an opera. Um, it's based on a book that's highly stylized and like kind of a little bit aloof, but it, but the peaks are so passionate. Uh, mm. And the that in the French opera, there you know, there's a lot more of that. Will they? Won't they? Give them a little shoulder. Always leave them wanting more. The Italian <laughs> version starts at sixty miles an hour and just keeps getting more intense. They, they they have the whole the whole shoulder out the whole time. Yeah, sometimes two shoulders even. Ooh, um, spicy. But what, the reason why I like this duet and why it, and why it's very Valentine'sy, even though um, they're basically fighting for the first half of it, uh, is just because it's so it's lush and it's indulgent and it's kind of unpredictable sometimes even manipulative, uh, occasionally dangerous. Um, But, you know, what's not to love about an opera that is largely about uh, conflating love and materialism and how those two are essentially interchangeable until they're not anymore? That has nothing to do with Valentine's Day. Nothing (laughs) at all to do with Valentine's Day. So what you're saying is Manon Lascaux and Zeus and Alita are the same opera. They they really are. But what, (laughs) what sets them apart is Puccini music. Because it's, it's big. It's romantic. It's unapologetic. Um, but I feel like we kind of take the passion for granted without looking into the craftsmanship of how uh, he's able to like conjure up all of these strong emotions. Uh, and to examine a little bit more of how exactly that happens, I want to just play some excerpts, take a look at this duet from Act 2, um, where Degria has snuck into Manon's house, where she's living with an old rich guy, uh, and they start to get back together and then they start arguing and then they decide that they are in fact going to get back together uh this it is passionate and it is full of desire but as i said first half of it they're bickering 
Um, and what Puccini does is he varies the phrase lengths of what the characters are singing so that they, uh, they cut each other off and then they take turns singing these phrases that kind of spin out into long exclamations. Um, much like, much like how we're doing this podcast. <laughs> exactly right now. <laughs> But as the argument goes on, you can kind of hear that the orchestra is taking a side. So in this second clip, uh, or second link down in the show notes below, uh, the orchestra starts to guide the tenor, Degria, a little bit more towards what Manon was saying. He reinforces her love, her desire, the, uh, you know, moving him towards a kiss. Uh, and what is so satisfying about this music is that if you just listen to it in isolation, it can kind of sound over the top and saccharine, but it's being used to like, it, it's being used to really capture actual human emotions here. Very unlike Valentine's Day. <laughs> And finally, in this third section, you will hear how that that intensity builds to a climax. This duet is really the aural version of Rage Sex. Because they start out where they from where they start out and from where they go are just completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, and it really captures the way that that kind of love and romance is not free of conflict and how... Uh, a relationship can go pretty poorly when you're not on the same page. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to look at an operatic duet as 
like a, a form of really real human communication is not something that most people would necessarily agree with. Like that's not how people actually talk to each other in, in real life. Um, but experiencing it secondhand can be extremely thrilling. And like, let's just let our feelings be complicated this year. It's 2021. We've been through a lot. Oh, that's a mood. Licha Albanese and Yussi Björling in the act two duet uh, Asoro La Piubella from Manolesco with John L. Perlea conducting. Thank you, Matt, for that beautiful tour, and thank you both for this menage a trois of oh, operatic love duets and uh, singing. I know, I feel gross, too. Oh, please end the segment now. It's the two-minute drill. This just in. The Two Minute Drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The battle between unions and Met management seems to have gotten nastier after emails were leaked to slipped disk. In one email, union representative Adam Krauthammer told Peter Gelb that, quote, I would say that I'm surprised by your behavior, but sadly, I'm not. You seem to be set on continuing the same pattern of bad faith bargaining you started this summer. The emails claimed that Gelb had yet to respond to a, quote, good faith proposal all the way back in November. Anna Netremko went on, as planned, in her recital offering for the Met Stars Live in Concert series without the Met Orchestra. The, quote, reigning diva of the Met was reviewed by our friend of the show, Harry Rose, who wrote, At the contentious point of confluence between the decay of the Met's management's relationship to its orchestra and chorus, conversations about cultural appropriation in opera, and what it means to safely present a concert during the coronavirus pandemic, the idea of a blithe recital by Anna Netrebko, whose outsized social media presence frequently challenges at least two of the above themes, seems about as off-key as the diva herself sounded in moments of Saturday's program. Burn. Meanwhile, members of the Met Orchestra are counter-programming by appearing with soprano Angela Giorgio in Bucharest later this month. Quote, A great opera performance does not mean only great singers, but also a great orchestra, a great chorus, and many more great people working for the whole production every day, said Giorgio, presumably making direct eye contact with Peter Gelb and Anna Netrebko. Houston Grand Opera has announced the winners of this year's Concert of Arias competition for young singers, with the first prize of $10,000 going to countertenor Kimon W. Murrah. 
Tenor Eric Taylor and mezzo-soprano Emily Triegel walked away with the second and third place, respectively, and the Ana Maria Martinez Encouragement Award went to Angel Vargas. Thomas Hampson will receive the prestigious Milne's Voice Award from the Voice Experience Foundation in its virtual gala in March. The world-renowned baritone and founder of the Hampsong Foundation will receive the honor from Cheryl Milnes, a legendary American baritone in his own right for you kids who may not recognize the name. Police were reportedly called to Sydney Opera House last month after a man swatted actress Nicole Kidman during a performance of The Merry Widow. Witnesses allege a man in the audience grew agitated when Kidman and her husband Keith Urban rose to offer a standing ovation. After a heated exchange, the disgruntled audience member swatted Kidman with his program, leading Urban to accuse him of assaulting his wife. Police were called to the venue, but no charges were filed. This could have been one of today's yellow cards for real. Far-right political figures in France, such as Marine Le Pen, have attacked the Paris Opera for its recent measures to address racial injustices. The Opera, under Alexander Neef, recently hired its first diversity and inclusion officer and is considering how best to create an anti-racist standard for the company. If they're making Le Pen angry, they're probably doing something right. Speaking of the Paris National Opera, Taiwanese conductor Wu Qinglian has been announced has been hired as the company's new chorus master, the first woman to be appointed to the position. She'll head to Paris in April from Dutch National Opera, where she has served as chorus master since 2014, to the probable chagrin of Marine Le Pen. The American Opera Project announced the creation of the AOP Artistic Advisory Council. The council will offer their ideas and personal insights to AOP, mentor creative teams in the development stage, and serve on a programming panel for the organization. Among the artists and innovators who comprise the new council are friends of the show, conductor Alexis Enyart, countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo, composer Huang Ro, and librettist Mark Campbell. The OBS team is still waiting for our invitation to join the council, but we can happily point to our long list of Inside the Huddle guests if they need more ideas. This week's yellow cards... France. A Jakob Josef Orlinski concert was cancelled in December due to COVID, but has now been officially rescheduled for June. Fingers crossed. Germany. German Minister for Culture Monica Grüters has announced that another billion euros will be allocated towards the cultural sector, doubling the federal government's assistance to artists in the country. Nice umlaut, Weston. This week's red cards... Switzerland. Open House Zürich will remain closed until at least April 2021. France. Opera de Toulon has cancelled its run of Cosi Fan Tutte, which was scheduled to run in March. Germany. Opera Köln will remain closed until the end of March, becoming the latest in a long line of German theaters to shut down due to increased COVID-19 transmission rates. Washington. 24 temporary furloughs have become permanent layoffs from Seattle Opera's administrative staff. Due to pandemic-related financial uncertainty, the company can no longer guarantee rehiring these now former employees. Exit stage right. Austrian soprano Friedel Tellerblum has died at the age of 88. The daughter of a cabaret singer, her family escaped to America where she joined the Metropolitan Opera Studio at 16. She went on to join the Vienna Volksoper, Theatre Münster, and Israel National Opera. She sang more than 40 roles, including her signature Madama Butterfly and Violetta, and went on to a long teaching career, career at Tel Aviv's Rubin Academy of Music. American soprano Marcella Real has died of COVID-19. She was 84. 
She studied with Lore Lehmann at the University of Music and Performing Arts Munich on a Fulbright scholarship and went on to become one of the most sought-after Puccini and Verismo singers of her generation, singing Madama Butterfly on Tosca more than 300 times. Irish coloratura Cara O'Sullivan has died at the age of 58. She sang her first major role as Donna Anna with the Welsh National Opera in 1996 and went on to perform with English National Opera, Opera Nantes, Palau de la Musica Catalana, Paris Opera, at the Sydney Opera House, and with Vlamis Opera. O'Sullivan was diagnosed with early-onset dementia in 2018. And on this day, February 8th, in 1710, it was the first performance of Alessandro Scarlatti's opera La Principessa Fedele at the Teatro San Bartolomeo in Naples. In 1741, composer André Gratry was born. In 1874, it was the first performance of the second version of Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov in St. Petersburg, one for Weston. In 1879, it was the birth of the soprano who created the role of Hannah Glowari in The Merry Widow, that soprano Mizzy Gunter. In 1914, Giancito Prandelli, the Italian tenor, was born. In 1934, one of our favorites, Ellie Ameling, was born. And in 1937, it was the birth of Austrian soprano Gundula Janowitz. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of the... Ombre Mai Fu that Kimon Mura offered at the Houston Grand Opera concert of Aria's competition on Friday of last week. Um, I don't know. We've been talking about this kid. We've talked about him before, but you should look him up and see some of his social media content and some of his, you know, just messing around at the piano with his brother, like, He's insane, and I'm so <laughs> glad that now he's like making it mainstream because he's gonna have a career. Whew, whew. Got that X factor in yes. everything you do. Some people yes. you can just tell. Yeah, you know what's really insane though is everything just piling up at the Met. Just not not just the fact that negotiations are dragging on and on, which is you know by now part for the course at the part Met. for the course but just like the absolute cattiness of what's going on is really kind of incredible and i i do want to give a shout out to um H- harry rose's review of the anatrepco concert so in parterra box because he's got such a way with words and he's a big friend of the show easier um, to read than to say than to read <laughs> yes, true true yeah. true but um he's he really hits the nail on the head when like uh, the met you know specifically Hiring Anna Netrebko, like sort of the avatar of all of this negative criticism about the way not just um, the Met is run, but how opera in general is run. And just you and then and then the Met Orchestra staging their own counter recital with uh, Georgiou, uh, who hasn't been who hasn't sung at the Met in like probably 12 years because. There's there's some bad blood there. Like yes. she and Gail do not get along because of roles, because of Wigs. her divorce from Alanya. <laughs> Just like they they are rubbing salt in this wound. It's mm. truly incredible. I mean, uh, obviously the um, the 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 negotiations going poorly. Um, if these emails are uh, indeed real that have been leaked, makes sense. 
Um, and it's just kind of the attitude we've kind of assumed that management has had this entire time. Um, but just, uh, uh, the, the sheer, the, the sheer cattiness of it all is truly incredible and something that I think we're going to see more of before we see less. These union negotiations always like are in competition with the operas that they put on for like, what can be the most dramatic and overblown. I, I'm not <laughs> exactly sure how union union leaders and like management come to that strategy that they're just going to snipe at each other in the media and hope that one of them comes off better. I feel like people <laughs> just like go back to their corners and pick what, like if you're a union supporter, you support the union. And if not, you are mad that the cancels are getting, that your concerts are getting canceled. Um, but yeah, we're not going to see a, a quick resolution here. They're both digging no. in their heels. Yeah. And um, for don't, the record, don't I, mess I, with uh, Nicole Kidman. When you go to the opera, leave her alone. <laughs> Unless you're she... offering her constructive criticism for how to improve her American accent. Oh, come on. <laughs> then it's I mean, perfectly she, I, I mean, how old is she? She's in her upper 40s or maybe early 50s. Yeah, it's, she... not getting, it's not getting fixed. Sorry, Lucille yeah. Ball. You're from, <laughs> you are from Australia now. <laughs> well, I will say that apparently the, the crux of the conflict with this audience member um, was about uh, essentially concert etiquette which is something that we've talked about before. Um, there, uh, there are maybe people who are newer to the opera. They don't know uh, how loud they, sh they should be and can be, uh, when they should stand up, when they should sit down, when they should cheer and shout. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you sit next to a person who's really it's old It's not school. the Golden Globes, folks. So. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like Oliver, you sit next to Oliver, and then Oliver swats you with his program. And in this case, <laughs> the police get called He's on like you. the rowdiest audience member there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that, you know, uh, while, uh, uh, while Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban are hardly just a random person off the street, and they very well might have a certain sense of entitlement to how to enjoy the show since they're both big name celebrities. Um, I, I will say that I think that sometimes those sorts of criticisms are unwarranted, although maybe not worth calling the police over. Um, and speaking of drama, uh, Marine Le Pen's little, little temper tantrum is very funny to me because I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. And I fully support the Paris Opera's attempts to become more diverse and inclusive. And I think you two can probably get on I mean, board this is like a follow-up to a story we've done before about how Paris Opera is trying to... Remember they had that, like, they're going to ask their dancers, like, you know, what's been going on back there? Tell us, tell us anything yeah. you know, you know? So, I mean, there's a whole view of racism that we don't quite understand here in the U.S. Uh, they really right. do have this, like, some, some maybe Americans have, like, this uh, anti-white sentiment like you know nationalist sentiment and it's a whole wing of the government and far, far longer established uh in the in france than it has been in the u.s but we're competing pretty well with them on that front <laughs> but it, it i mean it does have a lot of echoes to like something like the 1619 project where you're just even the act of re-examining things that we had that you may have thought for years that you know that weren't really examined mm -hmm. very closely in schools they talk about um that just causes rancor with some members of the population. And we don't really have to take their rancor seriously, nor should we. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, Marine, Marine Le Pen, if you, if you don't know, if you don't follow French politics, is a, is a real pile of garbage and her opinions are always bad. So I, <laughs> so, so that, that's pretty much all I have to say other than um, I think that um, 
that being aware that these problems are being spoken about, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere in Europe and across the world really shows just how deep the the roots of racism extend and how much work still needs to be done to sort of dig it out from all of our institutions and ourselves. Um, and to that end, I think I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what AOP does exactly, Oliver, but I think they're doing that kind of thing <laughs> with this new sort yeah. of panel. Well, you know what? We don't want to speculate on what AOP is doing and what they will be doing. So we're going to try to get one of our friends of the show to come on very soon and talk to us about this new uh, advisory council and to tell us a little bit more about the American Opera Project mission. So stay tuned on that front. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. Oliver, what have you got for me? So I love a competition, and it's really the part about singing and opera that is most uh, you know, that, that rhymes the most with sports. And uh, I think that this Houston Grand Opera online competition was really charming. It was hosted by Tamara Wilson, and they had a bunch of the, um, you know, probably the donors and sponsors cutouts in the hall, you know, um, their cardboard cutouts in the audience. And I thought it was just so delightful. And um, you can find the video rather easily on YouTube if you go to Houston Grand Opera's YouTube channel, the 33rd Annual Concert of Arias, and you can hear Kimon Mura and the other contestants. Uh, it's a almost three-hour program, so you don't have to watch all of it, but, um, you know, we talked about another online competition recently, and this is how you do it. Matt Cummings. Uh, as I was trolling the social medias over the weekend, I saw a tweet <laughs> uh, about the, the Washington National Opera Kennedy Center co-production of their digital Fidelio, which they were supposed to produce this year, had to cancel because of the pandemic. Uh, and the project that they went ahead with is a graphic novel retelling of it that features clips from the opera sung by their young artists. And the graphic novel is told, Fidelio is an opera about you know political prisoners and uh, re being rescued, but it's one of those stories that becomes a lot more modern and relatable when you work modern when you work concepts like race into it. So Fidelio and Leonora are black. Pizarro is still not black. And it really just adds resonance to a story that I personally had always considered to be kind of stale and questionably worth doing. So I highly recommend checking out this video and just a good reminder of, you know, how these stories can continue to be relevant in today's society. And George Cedarquist is not here, so he can't tell me to not do a good call, so I will do a good call. Thank you very much, George. Breaking free. Um, I encountered uh, the other uh, couple weeks ago, actually, um, a YouTube video that someone posted of someone who managed to recreate uh, the entirety of the Philip Glass opera Akhenaten entirely using Minecraft music blocks, and it is as bonkers as it sounds, and you should go listen to it immediately. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. 
On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email at us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The possibilities are endless. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this, the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is strictly for forbidden unless you bribe me you know you can dm me for my venmo and don't tell george don't tell george our creative consultant is oliver camacho our audio and video editor is this guy for our co-host matt cummings i am weston williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you pawn off your least favorite type of chocolate in the box to your valentine we're back with an all-new show next week with some relief from this sausage fest plus you'll get more opera headlines more hot takes and more australian open join us then <laughs>